Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, this morning, we are going to be continuing in our series on church doctrine, or on doctrine, theology, and uh, this morning is kind of a follow-on to last week. Uh, last week was the doctrine of the world, and we talked about various foundational issues and first principles of engaging with the world, and I suggested that those first principles were kind of a starting point on which you could then build further biblical principles. Uh, for example, God created the world, and we're stewards, and so we can build on that principle, looking further into biblical principles of, say, how we engage with the environment and address resource consumption or economics. Um, we looked that God is engaging with the world in a redeeming way. God's redeeming the world. And so you could take that and you could build on that foundation to discover further biblical principles applying to things like criminal justice or our penitentiary system or how we address addiction. There are foundational principles that we looked at, what our stance towards the world needs to be, that is a foundation principle. That's the idea. And today, as we look at the doctrine of mercy, what I want to do is sort of give an example of or take a founding principle that God loves the world and is merciful towards the world and see how that might unpack to how we would then engage with the world in mercy. And so this is kind of a part two of the world, and it's kind of a practical application of how foundational biblical principles inform our posture towards the world. Uh, now, as I usually do, I have some extra resources. Uh, so some extra resources on mercy in Concise Theology. It's pages 45 and 237, Goodness and the State. If you're looking for a prior sermon, uh, there's a three-parter that was around just before Christmas in 2017, The Love of the Father, The Love of the Spirit, and The Love of the Son. So you could look at that. And a book that I can highly recommend, Church in High, Hard Places by Mez McConnell and Mike McKinley, uh, which just talks about how the church is meant to show mercy in the most difficult of situations. So what I hope to do today, as I said, is, is go a little further on building on the foundation principle that we started last week, that God's stance towards the world is a stance of love. That is, God loves the world and so should we. And build further into a specific form of his love, which is mercy, and hopefully today sketch out some of the biblical principles about what the shape of our mercy should take towards modern social issues. And, and hopefully those terms that I'm using are helpful towards you. I talk about our posture or our stance towards the world. In other words, how do we position ourselves? How does the world see us uh, standing towards them? Are we have our arms crossed like this? Are we fighting, you know, or are we loving them? So what's our stance towards the world? That's the one idea. And then the other term that I'm using today is what is the shape of our mercy? In other words, mercy can come in all kinds of different flavors and shapes, but what shape should our mercy take? How does biblical mercy look? And what kind of love should ours look like? And so I think we sort of understand that there are some things that people might call love or loving that the Bible would disagree really is loving. And uh, the same way, there's shapes of mercy that perhaps are not really merciful. Or maybe it's better stated even this way. This is, this is the key idea of, of what we're going to penetrate today. There are many Christians who think they live mercy-shaped lives, but the mercy that they think they express is not biblically shaped as they might think it is. And so what we really want as disciples, what we really want is our Christian lives to accurately express Bible-shaped mercy towards the world. 
Because unfortunately, our mercy cannot be as Bible-shaped as we think it is. And in order to do that, I've, I've broken this morning down into three basic sections, and the idea is that we are going to consider today to arrive at a, an application of the shape our mercy should take, and what characteristics it expresses is this. We're going to understanding the shape of God's mercy, then we're going to look at what Jesus taught us about mercy, and then we are going to consider the resulting shape of our mercy facing modern issues. And I'll just pray before we open up God's Word and start to dig into what does a doctrine of mercy begin to look like? Father God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have placed us in this world. We thank you that you've shown us tremendous mercy and that we have mercy to show to the world. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help us understand, me included, what shape our mercy should take. What are its primary characteristics that our mercy towards the world must express in order to be biblical and godly mercy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, we'll look at understanding the shape of God's mercy. And I won't spend a lot of time here because I think if you've been listening to sermons or participating in life groups at Lakeside for even just a few months, you've picked up what we know the Bible reveals as the shape of God's mercy towards us. As a, as a first principle of mercy, we should keep in mind that God's mercy is directly related to his justice. And I'll just start with this uh, sort of diagram that helps us understand where mercy lies. Because a lot of us don't even really think of mercy in this context often. The, the first principle of mercy is that God does not give us what we should deserve. We understand this by a simple diagram R.C. Sproul kind of made famous to teach it. If there's a circle that includes everything that is justice, everything inside the circle is what we would consider just, then that means everything outside the circle is not justice, it's non-justice. But we can divide the outside of the circle into two parts. Um, the one thing that is not justice we know of is injustice, whenever things are unfair, whenever people are dealt with poorly in a way that they don't deserve. what. They get treated worse than they deserve, evil, wickedness, harm, insult, abuse, oppression on people. We look at that in the world, we look at that in our lives, and we say, that's not just, that's injustice. But on the other side of non-justice is mercy. If we deserve punishment, but we don't receive it, that is also non-justice. And so mercy is not just, mercy is unjust, but not unjust. And so we have to be clear that this is the kind of non-justice that we like. We don't like the other one, but we like the mercy one, right? We don't like it when God gives us what we deserve. We love it when God forgives us and gives us mercy instead. But it frames mercy this way, God, or Paul frames mercy this way. The mercy of God looks like this in Romans 2, 2 to 4. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such evil things. But do you suppose, O oh man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so when we're experiencing the non-justice of God in patience and kindness and forbearance and grace and mercy then we understand that that is supposed to lead us someplace. God is using that for a purpose. And so very simply, when, when God is merciful, he does not commit an injustice, but he does commit a non-justice. 
If God rightfully punishes the wicked, he does not perform an injustice, but he performs justice. Now, that's, you can just take that home today, and you can think that through all you want. That is some, you just got to understand, though, as a first principle, that mercy is not just. Mercy is grace. And because mercy is a fundamental attribute of God, and because mercy takes its shape from God, then we have to understand, this is the point of this, we as people, as we extend mercy, we have to understand that mercy goes to people who receive what they do not deserve. People get mercy who don't deserve it. When we engage mercifully with the world, we are recognizing that it feels unfair and not just to be merciful. So whenever you feel like somebody is getting more from you than what they deserve, then you're on the right track. But we have to guard ourselves because we respond negatively to that feeling, right? We instinctively pull back from, they don't deserve it, they shouldn't get it. But the whole point of mercy is that it is non-just. People who don't deserve mercy receive mercy, okay? We talked about our missions when we were praying for Blaine. That's the kind of mercy we understand. There's people who deserve more, and so we show them compassion, and we show them mercy. That kind of mercy we understand, and we like doing that. But when it's somebody who doesn't deserve grace and doesn't deserve forgiveness and doesn't deserve patience, then we pull back. But this whole, this whole first part here is to understand that God-shaped mercy, all of God's mercy is going towards people who do not deserve it. Mercy, by definition, God's mercy is aimed at people who do not earn, do not deserve, should not receive. And so our mercy, when we offer it, will seem unfair. Secondly, we also see that God's mercy is active. Simply not causing harm is not mercy in and of itself. To be merciful, we actually have to reverse harm. When we rebelled against God and went our own way, this is what he's talking about in Romans 2 there, God didn't simply step back and say, well, I've done my part correctly. I made Adam and Eve. I put them in a perfect garden. I did everything right, and they messed it up, and so I'm just not going to be involved now. I'm just going to step back after their failure, and let things run their course. But because mercy is an attribute of God, mercy takes its shape from him, and mercy is active. God's mercy is active. Instead of leaving us in our sin and suffering, God intervenes on our behalf. So mercy goes towards people who don't deserve it, and mercy is active. It's not simply not doing harm. It's working to reverse harm. And thirdly, we see that his mercy is costly because as God intervenes mercifully in the state of mankind in our fall, his rescue is done at his great expense. John 3.16, obviously, is the most famous verse for that reality. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's mercy is costly, and therefore biblical mercy is costly. But we see this again in shorthand in Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So mercy that has its shape given by God is non-just. We have to prepare ourselves for the fact that we will be expected to show mercy who do not deserve it and who probably have even harmed us. Secondly, we realize that 
what makes it mercy is that it is active. It is actively engaged in solving harm and protecting those who need protection. And thirdly, that it will be costly. It's going to cost us to be merciful. That is the shape of God's mercy in broad strokes. But secondly, we can look at is this the mercy that Jesus taught? Jesus came to teach us a whole bunch about God, and Jesus taught us a lot about mercy. So are those principles evident in the things that Jesus taught us about mercy? Can we see it confirmed in the New Testament? Well, there's a hundred places we could go for this too, Sermon on the Mount, places like that. But to pull out some biblical principles of mercy as they apply to us very relevantly today, I want us to consider two Samaritans. We're going to consider today the Good Samaritan and the Bad Samaritan. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan and his personal interaction with a Bad Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan, to refresh your memory, is told to a group of very religious people. Like I said at the beginning, people who thought that the, the way they were living their life and expressing mercy towards the world was biblical, and Jesus had to teach them that their mercy was not as biblical as they thought it was. And Jesus is not so sure that they live biblically-shaped lives, and so he gives them a little story that teaches them, and probably will teach us, more about mercy than we think we know. Here's the parable from Luke 10, 30 to 37. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I know many of you know it, but we're just going to read it again to see what Jesus is teaching these Pharisees and these scribes. Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, and so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now you remember the story. You get it? The picture? And this was a scandalous story for several reasons. First of all, Jesus' listeners knew that Samaritans were not good people. They were ideologically different than faithful Jewish people. Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. They didn't worship at the temple. They didn't practice the law the way the Jews did. They held different customs. They believed different things about the world. They were not God's chosen people. They were a thorn in the side of Israel. Everybody who's listening to this story knows the Samaritans are not good, deserving people. And yet Jesus makes it plain that this Samaritan's approach to mercy was more Bible-shaped than the priest, who's an expert at law-keeping, and a Levite, who is an expert at teaching the law and knowing the law. And that's the most obvious scandal or the most obvious rebuke of this story. The religious need to be careful that they are actually practicing their faith. And most of us understand that. Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful that your life is as Bible-shaped as you think it is. Be careful that your mercy is as God-shaped as you think your mercy is. These priests and this Levite did not have Bible-shaped mercy. But there's a more subtle lesson for us here, too, I think. The, The cause of the hypocrisy. 
The, the bait that leads us off the path into the ditch that the priest and the Levite fell into while trying to walk biblical mercy, they fell in a ditch on one side. And, and, and the lesson, I think, that's sort of just barely below the surface is the warning that ideological enmity can cause us to abandon or twist our biblical values. You see, the priest or the Levite didn't not want to be merciful. They, in fact, even just for their own selfish reasons, would want to be merciful and put on a show of being merciful. But you see what happened here, because they were Jews and and the man on the road was unclean and, and may or may not have been a Jew, whatever, they let ideological enmity cause them to abandon their biblical values. They didn't express Bible-shaped mercy in their life because of racial, political, historical, and ideological hostility against Samaritans. I mean, I don't know why they were on the road to Samaria anyway, but they were not going to risk the fact that they were going to help a Samaritan. Heaven forbid. And our world is full of ideological traps just like this these days with many ideological tribes, and Christians fall into the same trap often. In our eagerness to separate ourselves from any possibility of being identified with the wrong ideology, we end up withholding mercy and compassion, or even engaging in good faith dialogue with people whose ideology offends us. And that was the problem the priests and the Levite had. They were so concerned about being perceived as crossing an ideological line that they twisted their biblical understanding of mercy. And as a result, Christians can find ourselves on the wrong side of a moral issue. In other words, we often have much to learn from our ideological enemies, just like these priests and Levites had to learn from their Samaritan enemy. We have much to learn from our ideological enemies when they express biblical values more faithfully than than we do. This is exactly Jesus' point of the story. The Samaritan, on the other hand, was willing to cross ideological lines in order to show mercy to those who hated him. People who would never do the same to him in return and disagreed with him. That echoes God's mercy, does it not? To cross ideological lines, to invade the other camp, so to speak, with mercy to those who do not deserve. While we were yet enemies, God sent his son. But there's another lesson here. Not only does biblical-shaped mercy, Jesus say, have to cross ideological lines, has to go into the enemy camp, The other lesson here is that the Good Samaritan's mercy we see is proactive. We notice here that the Samaritan was not good simply because he didn't beat up and rob the man himself. Jesus doesn't say, look at this Good Samaritan, he didn't rob the guy. That's not why he's good. For that matter, the priest and the Levite are explicitly shown that they are not good even though they didn't beat up and rob the guy. So just not being an abuser and a robber doesn't pass muster for mercy. The priest and the Levite in this story are shown to be bad, even though they didn't actually beat the guy. Simply not robbing people is not a biblical definition of mercy. The Samaritan was more than just, I won't rob people myself. He was, as we might say today, anti-robbery. He was not able to simply stand by and observe the effect of robbery, be content with simply not participating himself. Biblical mercy goes beyond simply not causing harm. Biblical mercy is actively anti-harm. And finally, there's more. We see also here in this story that his mercy was costly. 
It says, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So we see here in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, he's teaching the exact same principles of God-shaped mercy. Mercy that God created, the mercy that takes the shape of God's mercy, the mercy that is biblical, crosses ideological lines. It enters into the enemy's camp. It shows mercy to those who we feel may not deserve it. It is proactive. It's not enough to simply say, well, I'm not going to be that, or I'm not going to do that, and therefore I'm a good person. Biblical mercy is active. It's proactive. It is anti-harm. It is anti-robbery. It is anti-abuse. It is anti-whatever negative, sinful thing is out there. Mercy is against it and is active, and it is costly. It costs us to be merciful, and biblical mercy, we will always look for how, what price can I pay to be part of the redeeming mercy of God against these things that are harmful in the world. Now, I just want to note here that biblical mercy has nothing to do with guilt. The Good Samaritan was not thinking, oh, this guy was attacked by other Samaritans, and so I have some sort of racial guilt built in here that I need to pay for what my countrymen have done. Neither was he as afraid that anyone could perceive his actions that way. Our motive for mercy is grounded simply in the fact that it is biblical and God-reflecting to show compassion and be merciful at our expense and on the benefit of others, even and especially when we have no guilt in the matter. So, so biblical mercy and the actions of Christians in the world have nothing to do with guilt, has nothing to do with paying anything back. It has to do with reflecting the image of God in his redeeming mercy. So those are lessons from the Good Samaritan. We also get some lessons on mercy from Jesus himself and his interaction with a bad Samaritan. And we have the account of the bad Samaritan in John 4, 4 to 42. This is the Samaritan woman at the well. And I'm going to summarize this account for the sake of time and just highlight the key elements because it's a very long interaction, but I think you'll pick up and remember uh, this encounter. And Jesus and his disciples are traveling the hot, dusty road through Samaria, and they're getting hungry and thirsty. So the disciples go off to buy some food, and they leave Jesus by the well of Jacob. And so he's alone there, and he's sitting there around noon, and a Samaritan woman approaches to draw water. So he asks her for a drink, and she's shocked. She's stunned. Why would you, a Jew, ask a Samaritan for a drink? And as most of us remember, Jesus turns the table and says, if you knew what gift God was offering and who you were talking to right now, you would ask me for water and I would give you the water of life and you'd never be thirsty again. So the woman says to Jesus, give me this water. Jesus turns the table a little farther and he says, go and get your husband too. But she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're correct. You have in fact had five husbands and you're living with a man who isn't your husband And at this point, she recognizes Jesus as a prophet and points out that she doesn't worship the way that the Jews say that she should. And again, racial and ideological differences emerge. I'm a Samaritan. I don't worship at the temple the way you Jews would have us worship. But Jesus isn't interested in getting into an ideological debate (laughs) or ideological differences All he wants is those who worship in spirit and in truth. And finally, she replies, I know the Messiah has come, and he will teach us all things. And then she returns to the town to tell them. She goes back to her city and tells them all about this Jewish man who talked to her and told her about her life and his living water. And Jesus ends up staying in that town an extra two days, and the people there confess, 
We believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So now here's Jesus' interaction, merciful interaction, with a bad Samaritan, and there are biblical principles and Bible-shaped mercy that we can see in this story, in this account. First of all, again, Jesus shows that his mercy crosses ideological lines to those that don't deserve it. It seems non-just. When the disciples come back and realize that Jesus has been talking to this Samaritan woman, they are shocked that he spoke to her at all. And he spoke by engaging with her in the most deeply held hurt and, and, and engaging with the most sensitive aspect of her identity, a, a woman who, for whatever reason, seemed to need to be with a man, any man, to have value. But that in his engagement with her, his mercy was not condemning or judgmental towards her. Rather, his mercy recognized what his enemy, so to speak, needed most, which was the good news of the gospel. And so, we see that biblical mercy again crosses ideological lines. We see that biblical mercy is not judgmental or condemning of those that we are showing mercy to. They're not interested in that. And we recognize that our mercy is extended because what we know our ideological opponents really need is they need the gospel. That's what Jesus understood. This woman needs the good news. And we see here and can take that principle that mercy was the means by which the gospel was able to bridge the ideological divide and enter into the other camp. How else would the gospel come to the Samaritans? How else will the gospel come to those who are our ideological or cultural or social opponents if it does not come by mercy? Bible-shaped mercy always carries with it at some level, even if, like in this case, it may not be explicit, it always carries with it the redemptive message of the gospel. Biblical mercy recognizes that even though we are engaging with compassion across ideological lines to people who we feel may not deserve the kind of mercy they are receiving, we are always engaging with gospel purpose. We're not engaging across ideological lines. We are not engaging with ideological opponents in order to win a battle. We're engaging in order to win a brother or a sister in Christ. When Jesus left the disciples with a final commandment, the Great Commission, he said, make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Jesus didn't say, just go and proclaim the gospel. He said, teach them all the stuff I taught you. And you know what a lot of the stuff that Jesus taught his disciples was? Mercy. Teach them mercy. Teach them how to be merciful. If we're going to fulfill the great commission of reaching the world, it has to include showing what we learned that Jesus taught us and teaching it to the world by our actions. But we also notice here as an aside that the mercy of Jesus and the mercy, biblical mercy he modeled does not compromise biblical truth. In his mercy, Jesus accepted the woman but not her lifestyle. Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's fine, you can sleep with whoever you want, don't change a thing about yourself. Even in the expression of his mercy, Jesus does not abandon biblical truth. In fact, it's because Jesus loves this woman that he wants more for her in the area of her relationships. He knows that part of his love for her would eventually lead her to confronting her sin. And so in our mercy, when we show mercy to people, it's not saying that we accept exactly how they are. When we cross ideological and social and cultural lines in order to engage people with compassion and mercy, we're not affirming everything about them. We are going to them exactly because we want them to have the gospel, 
because we want them to have more. And so biblical mercy does not compromise biblical truth. 1 Corinthians 13 is often read at weddings. It's the great love chapter. Even people who would consider themselves ideologically far apart from Christianity acknowledge the beauty of love expressed in 1 Corinthians 13, but they and and even a lot of Christians skim over verse 6 when reciting the shape of biblical love. They like the first part in verse 4 and 5. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Yeah, with you so far. But notice what Paul slips in here. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so biblical mercy, if it's Bible-shaped, you understand that even in showing love, even in expressing mercy, it's not a call to abandon what we believe. It's not a call to abandon the truth. But it is a call to show compassion. So we will be patient and kind and not boastful and not arrogant and not rude and not antagonistic and not insisting on our own way and not irritable and not resentful. We're not going to have that shape of mercy because that's not the shape of biblical mercy and love. But at the same time, we're not going to rejoice in people's wrongdoing. Jesus didn't celebrate the life that the woman was leading, but he brought her compassion and he brought her mercy along with the biblical truth. Biblical mercy does not turn a blind eye. It does not gloss over wrongdoing. Even as the scriptures call us to be merciful, they never call us to be unfaithful. Does that mean we're supposed to lead out with truth? You know, I hear so many Christians say, I'm just speaking the truth in love. Yeah, you're leading out with the truth. (laughs) Even if you just look at 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, if, if order has anything to do with precedence, kindly, kindness, humility, politeness, accommodation, and grace come before correction in this verse. But they are there. So lead out with compassion, but not fear that simply by being merciful and compassionate you are abandoning biblical truth. Don't think that the shape of biblical mercy is simply the shape of unlimited and unconditional tolerance of wrongdoing and error. That's the ditch the world falls into. Right? If, if the Levite and the priest and, and some others fall into the ditch of allowing ideological differences to put everybody at arm's length and refuse to show mercy, the other ditch that you can fall into on the other side, and, and the world often falls into this side, is that mercy is supposed to represent just accepting everything, and it doesn't matter what anybody is doing, it's merciful just to take them how they are and believe anything they tell you, and that's going to be merciful towards them. Well, that's not biblical mercy either. And so, to walk as disciples and not fall into a ditch on either side. We have to think carefully about real, godly, biblical mercy that does cross ideological lines, that does show mercy to those who do not deserve it, that that does cost us, but at the same time holds biblical truth so that we don't simply affirm everything that we encounter. Okay, then, based on these principles, then, of mercy and seeing them in practice, then we can reflect very briefly, then, on the shape of our mercy in modern issues. Just taking some of those principles that we've talked about, and I do not have time, nor do I desire in this forum to unpack each of these different sections, but you can now think, just think with me, if we were to take the topic of biblical mercy and what it looks like, how we then would then extrapolate further principles of what the shape our mercy should take on these issues. And a lot of careful and faithful work has to be done in order to get it right. Racism, BLM, critical race theory, 
What does biblical mercy look like engaging in that issue? Gay, lesbian attraction and transgenderism. What does biblical mercy look like engaging the world in that issue? Immigration and the refugee crisis. What would biblical mercy look like in engaging with that issue? Marxism and the economics of power. Progressivism and the new atheists. Environmentalism and conservation. And we could go on and on and on. So I frame it this way to show you, hopefully, that there are complex issues out there that are very ideologically, in many ways, opposed to some of the ways that we think. And in every one of these cases, we realize that our mercy is going to have to come from God, and our mercy is going to have to be God-shaped. Our mercy, by definition, to be mercy is going to be reaching across ideological borders and reaching out towards and benefiting our ideological opponents who are engaged in activities that we may feel don't deserve mercy or are even outright hostile to us. And it's going to feel unfair to treat them with mercy while they oppose us. And even as I say that, I, I just wonder, does God feel that way? <laughs> As he extends mercy, generation after generation, eon after eon, century after century, to a people who reject him, yeah, I think that's Bible-shaped mercy, to reach across ideological lines. We're going to have to avoid the trap of the priest and the Levite and not allow ideological differences to interfere with our calling to biblical mercy. And I think that's a key lesson. Quite often, the ideological differences can eclipse the mercy that we should be feeling in the situation. We're going to have to, in many cases, actively support the protection and care of people from harm and injustice, maybe even agree and align ourselves with some of their aims, even though we may align for a different reason. Jesus was so merciful to prostitutes and to the party scene that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard himself. Listen, if if your compassion and mercy towards our ideological opponents is so extravagant that it gets you accused of being a sympathizer, then you are just starting to get it right. If people accuse you of being, you know, pro any opposition thing, then you must be now starting to show the right amount of mercy. Because that's how merciful Jesus was. He was so merciful to people that were so opposed to the things that a good Bible-believing Jew should stand for that he got accused of being one of them. If anyone are victims of sin or harm or the fall, then we will at our expense extend mercy to our ideological opponents, protect and support others from harm and injustice, even if we disagree, and we will spend our time, dollars, or even our reputation to be active in our mercy. We have to go further than simply agreeing not to be harmful ourselves. We must be anti-harm at our own expense to see harm and injustice corrected. And we embrace mercy as the bridge that the gospel crosses over and over and over again into other ideological camps. By mercy, we have the opportunity to share the light, life, and truth and living water to those who do not see God or the world the way we do. We love the world and our ideological enemies or opponents in this way. We do not compromise the truth of the Bible. Our love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but celebrates the truth, and yet we still love, and we still show mercy. 
And as I said, that's a long list. I'm not going to go through this morning, you know, how biblical mercy fits in all of these categories. You know, my only effort this morning is to say, this is God-shaped mercy. This is what Jesus taught us about mercy. This is what biblical mercy looks like. Now, how does our biblical mercy cross those lines? How does it, at our expense, bring light and life to those who are not easy to love and who actually do us harm? It's not easy work, but it's also not impossible work. By the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit, it is possible to engage with Bible-shaped mercy in the most complex, difficult, and most ideologically opposed factions of our world today. That was Jesus' whole point. That mercy and compassion can cross ideological lines. It's not easy, but it is literally a Christian necessity to do it. It's how God has loved us. It's how He loved us. It's how we are to love the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this simple but difficult lesson in mercy. We are too often the Levite and the priest. We love extending mercy like we do in missions to those that are in need, to those that welcome our mercy, that those that are hungry and thirsty, those that are hungry and thirsty for the gospel, those in developing countries, those that can benefit from our generosity. We love helping those. But your word is clear that biblical mercy is the mercy that crosses ideological lines. Biblical mercy shows up in places where Everybody's going to look sideways at us and say, why are you supporting that? Why are you loving those people? Why are you crossing that line? Father, help us to think hard and thoughtfully and biblically about how we engage with our society with compassion and mercy. It's complex, it's difficult, but it is literally our Christian calling to do it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.